Well, good morning, everybody. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Father, we do thank you for this amazing time of the year. We pray that you help us to take advantage of every opportunity. Lord, we believe that there's just something wrong. There's something, uh, well, Lord, sinful. And having great opportunity right in front of us and us not taking it. So, Lord, help us to do that. But, Lord, we can only do it as you fill our lives, as you come and make the difference in us, Lord. We, We can't give to anybody else what you haven't first given to us. And so, Lord, now we just uh, humble ourselves before your word and ask that you would teach us, that you would change us by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we come to the book of Exodus, chapter 20, starting now at verse 1, we're thinking of this very dramatic occasion when the people of Israel came before Mount Sinai. They had come out of Egypt. They had seen God do so many amazing things for them. But now, having come out of Egypt and having come to Mount Sinai, There they are ready to receive something from God. And in that dramatic occasion, uh, it it wasn't sweetness and light. Instead, it wasn't one of those beautiful, deep, you know, mellow spiritual experiences as happened on that same mountain many hundreds of years later. On that same mountain, hundreds of years later, a prophet named Elijah went to go meet the Lord. And in Elijah's experience, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. There was a mighty storm, and the Lord wasn't in the storm. But yet God spoke to Elijah in what's called a still, small voice, something like a whisper. There was no whisper for Israel when the nation stood before Mount Sinai. There were earthquakes. There was thunder. There was lightning. There was smoke. It was a terrifying scene. And out of the midst of all of that, God spoke to them from heaven and he gave them Ten Commandments. Over the next two Sundays, we're going to take a look at all the Ten Commandments. This particular Sunday, we're going to take a look at the first four, the ones that comprehend our relationship with God. So put yourself there at Mount Sinai, smell the smoke, feel the earth tremble under your feet, and listen as God spoke to Israel from heaven, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. But please notice, before God gave them the command, he introduced himself. How did he introduce himself? Verse 2, I am the Lord your God. In saying those words, God made a difference between himself and the other popularly worshipped gods of the pagan nations. Ladies and gentlemen, there was no shortage of gods in the ancient world. The Babylonians had their gods. The Egyptians had their gods. The, The Assyrians had theirs. The Canaanites had theirs. No shortage of gods. But God wanted to make it clear that there's a difference. There was a separation between himself and those other supposed deities of the pagan nations. And he said, I want you to know who I am. I'm Yahweh. I am the Lord. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God who made a covenant with them. And he taught them something about who he was and about his nature. I need to give this little bit of preface because the way that the Lord introduced himself, I am the Lord your God, shows us that God thought it was important that they understand who he was, who he is. 
What I'm going to talk to you about over the next couple minutes is something that is completely counterintuitive to the way our culture thinks. So I want you to challenge yourself just for a moment here. You see, in the thinking of our culture, what you think about God is completely irrelevant. And there's no difference between one person who thinks God is this way and another person who thinks God is that way. Our culture tells you it's completely irrelevant. I'm here to tell you with the authority of the Bible that it's entirely relevant to your life. Matter of fact, if I could paraphrase a quote from A.W. Tozer, A.W. Tozer said something like this. The most important thing about a man is what comes into his mind when he thinks about God. Whether you realize it or not, and our culture doesn't help you realize it, but whether you realize it or not, what you think about God is vitally important. And when the Lord stood before Israel and spoke to them from heaven and said, I am Yahweh, your God, he separated himself from the gods of the nations. And he told them this. He said, I am a God who's above nature. You know, all those pagan gods that the nations worship, there was the God of fire and there was the God of the sky and there was the God of the earth and there was the God of the sun. So many of them were connected with nature, but God says, I'm above all of that. I made that stuff. I am above nature. Secondly, God communicated to them that he's personal. He's not a depersonalized force, but he relates with and he communicates to man in an understandable way. I am God who has a mind, a will, a heart, a voice. You can connect with me, God says. Thirdly, God wanted them to know that he was good. You know, he had done good for Israel, and now he was going to do more good for them by giving them his law. And then fourthly, God wanted them to know that he was holy. That is, he's separate. He's not just like the gods that all the pagan nations worship, and he expects his people to be different as well. That's why he could say, verse 2, not only am I the Lord God, but I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. Please understand this. Before God told Israel to do anything with the Ten Commandments, and we'll look at the first four this morning, before he told them to do anything in the Ten Commandments, he reminded them of what he had already done. Don't you think that's a little bit thrilling? That God did not come to Israel in Egypt and say, I'm the Lord your God. If you keep these Ten Commandments good enough, I'll take you out of Egypt. He didn't say that, did he? No, what he said is, I'm the Lord your God. Look at what I've already done for you. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I brought you out of the house of bondage. Look at the great redemptive work that I've done in your life. Now look at my commandments. Listen, I'm going to be preaching these first four commandments and explaining them to you. And you're going to hear from me that, well, I'm... I'm pro Ten Commandments. I think we should obey them. But listen, the first message I would have for you if you don't know Jesus Christ, my first message to you would not be keep the Ten Commandments. That would be later down the list. My first message would be to you, receive the deliverance that God has for you in Jesus Christ. Let him free you from Egypt, so to speak. Let him free you from the house of bondage. Then go on to look at how he wants you to live and how he wants you to obey. God first did that for Israel. Next, look at verse 3. Here's the command. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, this first commandment flowed very logically 
from who God is and what he had done for Israel. Because of who he was, because of what he did for them, he was to be regarded by them as their God alone and no other God. He was to be the God that they worship and serve. Now, in the days of ancient Israel, both at the time when Israel was out Mount Sinai, but especially in the following centuries, there was always the temptation for them to worship the other gods, the gods of surrounding nations. Two idolatrous gods that Israel often had trouble with were named Baal and Ashtoreth. And maybe you've heard me speak on this before, but since I think it gives us such a good handle, I'll repeat it again. Baal was the Canaanite god of the weather. And in an agricultural society, if you wanted successful crops, you didn't have irrigation. You couldn't turn on the hose, so to speak, to water your crops. You had to pray for rain. Therefore, if you wanted financial success, the thinking of the day was you had to do your business with the god of weather, Baal. Baal was the god connected with financial success. Then there was another popular god named Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth was a female deity, a goddess, and she was connected with fertility and sexuality. Now, of course, that was a connection with financial success because you wanted your flocks and your herds to multiply. But more than anything, Ashtoreth was worth it worshipped with ungodly, immoral sexual rights. So let's see. Baal represented financial success. Ashtoreth represented sexual immorality. Aren't we glad that we don't worship idols today? I don't think that there's a single person, either here or that you know, that has a little statue of Baal in their home. But you know people. Maybe you are people who worship financial success who worship immoral sexuality. It's the same as the worship of Baal or Asher, but it's to our day today. It's been said that human nature is like an idol factory, and we're constantly turning out new idols. We always have to deal with the temptation to keep the Lord God first, and that he doesn't have to compete with other gods or other things that we would worship in our life. But please note, when he says you'll have no other gods before me, he doesn't mean that it's fine to have other gods in your life just as long as you put them down on the priority list. No, no, no. Literally, that phrase, no other gods before me, means to have no other gods to my face. God says, I don't want to even look at any other gods in your life. I demand to be your exclusive God. And this means that it's so much more than God being added to our life. I need to speak with clarity on this point because I think that there's some degree of misunderstanding. And sometimes well-intentioned evangelists present Christianity in the wrong way. It's very possible for a well-intentioned evangelist to present Christianity somewhat along these lines. Listen, uh, you know, you're a person and you're having a hard time in life. It would make your life so much better if you added Jesus to your life. And so the conception that gets in people's mind is, well, I live my life, I have my goals, I have my aspirations, I have what I want to do, and you know what? Jesus can help me do that so much better, so I'll just add Jesus to my life. Ladies and gentlemen, if you've kind of come to Christianity under that conception, I want to gently but firmly correct it. You just don't add Jesus to your life. He becomes your God, your Lord. You surrender your life to him. That's what it means to keep the first commandment. We just don't add him to our life. 
But still remember this. It also means that our conception of God must match with the God who's really there, the God of the Bible. There are many sincere people of faith in our world, in our community, such as Mormons, Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, and so on. They are sincere people of faith who honestly say that they believe deeply in God. But here's the problem. The God that they believe in does not match with the God that's revealed to us in the Bible. Do you see that actually that would be breaking this first commandment? It's one of the other gods that we're commanded to not worship. And what do I mean by that? Well, I'll just give you some quick examples. Mormons believe in God that is a glorified man and that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Now, whatever you want to say about it, you can confidently say, that's not the God of the Bible. Now, Muslims believe that God cannot be called Father, and that it's wrong to think that he has a fatherly love and care for his people. Whatever you want to say about that, that's not the God of the Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is just a high-ranking angel and that he is not God and the revelation of God. That is not the God of the Bible. Now, friends, don't misunderstand me. That's not to say that perhaps these religions that these other people hold don't do them some good, especially in the sense of making good citizens and members of a civil society. But as a messenger of biblical truth, it's important for me to tell you that when those of another group violate this command and when they worship another god, it's wrong. And to urge you not to make the same error. Here's the idea. The Bible reveals to us who God is and we must, to the very best of our effort, match our conception of God to who the Bible reveals God to be. And when we hold a wrong concept of God, we break this command. Now, one other quick point before I move on to the second commandment. There are some who might say, well, thank heavens, I don't believe that God is whom the Muslims say he is, or the Jehovah's Witnesses, or the Mormons, or some other group, if you want to fill in the blank. But here, it's very possible for you to have a wrong concept of God because, and I'll just give some examples, you don't think he's loving. You don't think he's forgiving. You don't think he's a God of grace. Can you see that you, in your own mind then, have a twisted conception of who God is and why you and I must make ourselves slaves to what the Bible says about who God is and worship him and him alone? That's the first commandment. Second commandment, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. For you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers onto the children of the third and fourth generations, those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands and those who love me and keep my commandments. Here's the core, right in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, and you shall not bow down to them and serve them. Don't make an image. In other words, it's one thing to worship a false god. 
It's another thing to worship the true God in a false way. And really, that's what the second commandment forbids. You could say, oh, no, 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 we're worshiping the Lord God. We're worshiping Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here is his representation. Bow down before it. God says, no, you can't represent me with something that's been made by the work of man's hands. Now, some people take this command to prohibit any kind of representation of God, such as a painting of Jesus or a picture of a dove that represents the Holy Spirit or any other representation. But the problem with that is that, and actually, it's the making of an image that was intended to be or likely to be worshipped. That's what God prohibited. See, the second commandment doesn't forbid making an image of something for artistic purposes. Later on, in the very book of Exodus, God commanded them to build a tabernacle of meeting that would serve as sort of a, you know, a, a temple that was a tent. And in that tabernacle of meeting, he commanded them to make the artistic designs of cherubim that surrounded the throne of God. There was nothing wrong with making artistic designs of cherubim, but they must not be worshipped, and God must be understood to be so far above and so much greater than any kind of image. And that's why he says there. Really, you could say that this is a fulfillment of John chapter 4, verses 24, verse 24, where Jesus explained the rationale behind this, com- this commandment. He said that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You say, well, you know, um, Is is it wrong for us to have a cross? If you pray to the cross, yes. If you regard it as an object of worship, yes. Because God isn't to be worshipped in the image, but in spirit and in truth. It's very important that we keep this command. And you might think that this command is very distant. Well, I wonder if it's so distant as you think it is. Let me bring this to your remembrance. Are we a culture that is obsessed with image? Oh, I think image is quite an idol in our culture, don't you? And in our culture that's so obsessed with how things look, rather with how things are, this is a huge challenge to us. We can't be satisfied just with the way things look. We've got to be not resting in our soul until we truly worship God in spirit and in truth. Why? Verse 5 tells us, because I am the Lord your God, I am a jealous God. God is jealous in the sense that he will not accept merely being added to our life. He insists on being supreme. And you know why he does this? He does it out of love. He is jealous for you. One commentator I read, and I think there's some validity to this point. He said maybe in our modern age we should translate it zealous instead of jealous. Because in our modern thinking, jealous is only negative. But several hundred years ago, when the word was used, it could be used in a positive or a negative sense. So maybe the idea for our modern way of speaking is more zealous than jealous. But you get the point. God is passionate about you. And therefore, he doesn't want you to worship him in any false way. Now, before we go on to the third commandment, I need to mention something about verses 5 and 6, because these verses trouble some people. In verse 5, it says that he visits the iniquity of the fathers of the children on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And they think, good heavens, this is awful. If there's a wicked man, his children will be punished for three and four generations after him. How can this happen? Well, let me just tell you, first of all, it is true. 
that a man or a woman's wickedness in their present day has an influence on the generations that come after them. Is this not true? Has this not been established? Have you not seen the effects of how an ungodly man or an ungodly woman, their sin doesn't just damage themselves, but it damages their family, their children, and their grandchildren. And it establishes family habits and family patterns and family environments that can be a curse to those people instead of a blessing. Well, in that sense, it's absolutely true. But notice this, that this is a promise that is only made real in the lives of those who hate God. Did you see that in verse 6? Excuse me, in verse 5, of those who hate me. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many here do not want to be under that curse? Well, include me among those. How do you avoid that curse? Don't hate God, but worship him as he is in spirit and truth. Actually, turn your heart, verse 6 says, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love him and keep his commandments. Do you want to have the mercy of God instead of that curse? Turn your heart towards him in love and obedience, and you'll receive the blessing and the goodness of God. All right, now for the third commandment, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Did you see it right there in verse 7? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I would say that there are at least three ways that this commandment is commonly disobeyed. Let me name them and let's discuss them briefly. First of all, it can be broken with profanity, with frivolity, or with hypocrisy. How is this command broken with profanity? Well, when people swear and use God's name as ungodly oaths and curses and as part of profane speaking, it's just wrong. And if I could just digress just for a moment. I know specifically we're here just on the topic of taking the name of the Lord in vain. But if I could just speak to the issue of profanity for a moment. You know, we just shouldn't have filthy mouths as believers. And, and there's some, there's some, you, you speak Monday through Saturday in a way you would never speak here in the congregation. People would be shocked if you use that kind of vocabulary here. Is it too much to say that, that Monday through Saturday you should speak with the same vocabulary that you would use here on Sunday? It's just the way that you should speak. I mean, this is just to be expected of us as believers. And if I could get a little more personal, when I... When I hear somebody who speaks in such profane ways, they're, they're, just, they're just dropping profane words left and right. You know, my first reaction isn't, oh, my heavens, they're so ungodly. My first reaction is more along these lines. I don't mean to be offensive. I'm just being transparent. If you want to forget about this part later, go ahead. But that's, <laughs> my first reaction is not to, oh, I'm going to faint or something because they said a bad word. My first reaction is, I thought they were smarter than that. Don't you have a better vocabulary than that? Could buy a dictionary, a thesaurus, for heaven's sakes. Can't, can't, I mean, I understand that everybody needs expressions of exasperation. I get that. But really, just in your daily speech, you need to speak with such a filthy tongue. You don't. And of course, there's always these endearing stories, and actually they are quite endearing. You hear from time to time, and I've experienced it myself, but I, I've, I've heard great stories about 
You know, people get up and they're just saved. They just came to Jesus, just touched their life. Jesus, they've been forgiven and new life from Jesus. And they come up, well, give a testimony, brother. And the guy gets up and he goes, I was such a blankety blank sinner. And I did blank and I blankety blank that. And, this, and you know, and it, there's actually something very warm and endearing about such things, right? But only if you're just brand new into the kingdom of God. I don't know what excuse those who have been walking with the Lord for a long time have. And, well, really, there is none, is there? So that's one. Profanity is a way that this is birth. Frivolity is another one. When people, and I don't think this happens very rarely among the people of God. But in the culture at large, just people just mock God, don't they? They just take the, and they mock him. They, they, they think they're clever with their, with their disgraceful talk about God. And listen, it's a sin that the Lord holds to their account. But really, I want to talk about the third way, not so much profanity, not so much frivolity. But if there's the great way that this sin to take the name of the Lord God in vain is broken, it's with hypocrisy, especially in this thing. When people do evil in God's name, it's taking the name of the Lord in vain. And ladies and gentlemen, that should never be named among us. The people do evil and then they justify it by saying, well, God told me so. And ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot of that in the world today, is there not? Are there not a lot of people who do evil things and they try to justify it by God? They steal and they justify it by God. They cheat, they lie, sometimes they murder and they'll try to justify it in God's names. That should have no place among us. That is a serious breach of this commandment, taking the name of the Lord in vain. In contrast, Jesus told us, to hallow the name of God, to make it holy. And he emphasized it by here by saying in verse 7, God said, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. It's a serious thing. How we represent God to the world is a serious thing. And so God will not hold us guiltless if we misrepresent him. Fourth commandment and our last one for this morning, beginning at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The command here is to take one day from seven and to keep it as a day of rest. We find it both in the command, verse 9 says, you shall do no work, but we find it as well just in the name Sabbath itself, which comes from the Hebrew word to rest. It's as if God said this, remember the rest day to keep it holy. One day of the seven should be given as a rest day. And one of the most exciting things about this command, I think, is found in verse 10, where God very specifically said that it was for the son and for the daughter, for the servant and for the stranger, even, in verse 10, extending it to the cattle. Give your cattle a day off. And this is a remarkably humane and generous view in the ancient world because it said to the ancient world that your servant is just as deserving as a day off as you are. Your cattle, your sons, your daughters, 
everybody gets the day off. And that was a radical concept in the ancient world, but it's what God commanded here from Mount Sinai. And he told them in verse 8 to take it and to keep it holy. Do you know what it means to make something holy? It means to separate it, to sanctify it in some way. And God commanded Israel to make sure that there was sacred time in their life, separated time where they gave their attention specifically to God and to his things. And I have to just say that, well, many people seek to honor this command by making church going a regular practice. And I think that's good. Look at you. You're here this morning. You've said, I want to take this time out of my week and I want to make it sacred unto God. I want to separate it. And there's other things that I could be doing right now. Now, don't think too much about those other things that you could be doing right now. But there are other things that you could be doing right now at this moment. You say, no, I'm not going to do those other things. I'm going to come here to the house of God, among the people of God, in the atmosphere of worship of God, where there's prayers to God being offered and where the word of God is being taught. And God, this is your time. And God bless you for seeking to obey this commandment by what you're doing right here, right now. I just got to say, I wish our culture was more observant of this commandment. Boy, did I encounter this when we, in 2003, moved our family to Germany. When we moved to Germany, I saw something that just astounded me. I couldn't believe it. Things pretty much shut down on a Sunday. The the stores weren't open. Malls weren't open. Pretty much on a Sunday, all that was open were gas stations and restaurants. Businesses, shops, stores, it all closed down. And you couldn't even believe it. You thought, what? Can they do that? At first, it was quite a shock to the system, and it seemed like a tremendous inconvenience. I can't run out and get a liter of milk on a Sunday. What am I going to do? It didn't take long until we received it as such a huge blessing. On Sunday, it's so few cars on the road. You just go out, and it's, it's calm, it's people. So much so, and maybe this was taking it so fo- too far, but so much so that you couldn't mow your lawn on a Sunday. Your neighbors might just report you. They might, b- because you were disturbing the peace of the neighborhood, and you had to respect it. There was something so, and you know what the remarkable thing was? The society still functioned. The shopping malls were closed on a Sunday, and the society did not crumble. A remarkable thing. We found it to be a tremendous blessing. And when we came back to California, one of the things we knew that we would have to pay as a price, so to speak, was we were coming back to a world where nothing closed ever. And it was always go, 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 drive, 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 the busyness of it. We, we appreciated the day of rest that the culture reinforced there in Germany. Listen, it's not just the culture that reinforces it. You and I, and I'm, I'm going to preach to myself here because I, I could be among the worst offenders in the room here. How difficult it is for me to take a day off is true rest in the week. To say, well, no, I won't schedule appointments on that day. No, I won't give myself to my normal work. No, I'll take it as a day of rest. But let me be clear about this. Yes, the Sabbath is given in a very practical way for us to observe but it's also given to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. When God told them to remember the Sabbath, he really told them to remember the rest. And the New Testament tells us that that rest is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
You see, like everything in the Bible, we understand this with the perspective of the whole Bible, not just this single passage. And with that understanding, we see that there's a real sense in which Jesus fulfilled the purpose and the plan of the Sabbath in that you no longer have to work for your salvation, but because of what he did on the cross for you and I, we trust in him and he is our Sabbath rest. Let me explain it to you this way. There might be a person who says, I am absolutely committed to taking a Sabbath every week and to not working on that day. My wife asked me to put up the Christmas lights on that day, and I said, no, it's the Sabbath. She asked me to take out the trash. I said, no, it's the Sabbath. You are a scrupulous keeper of the Sabbath. But yet, if you do not see the rest for your soul that God has for you because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, then you're not keeping the Sabbath at all. Or you're keeping a ritual of one day and seven. And that's good. That's a blessing. I'm glad you do that. But you need to look beyond the practical and see how God fulfilled it in Jesus Christ for each one of us. He is our Sabbath rest. It's so clear for an example in passages like Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 16, where he says that, that these things were a shadow. And therefore, let no one judge you in food or in drink or in regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Christ. So look to him and his complete work for you. That is the true fulfillment of the Sabbath. Yet, we dare not ignore the importance of a day of rest. God has built us so that we need one. And like a car that needs regular maintenance... We need regular rest, or you're not going to wear well. And for some people, it only shows up with high mileage. (laughs) There's some of you, you're not wearing so well with the high mileage. And maybe it's because, I'm not meaning that personally towards anybody, really. But but really, it's more because, because you haven't taken the rest that God commanded for you and for I. Now, let me review this. I'm just going to paraphrase the first four commands. Number one, put no other God before the Lord God as he's revealed in the Bible. Number two, reject image worship. Number three, never do evil in God's name. Number four, remember the rest, both spiritually and practically. Please, I can't leave this this morning without emphasizing this. God does not set these commandments before you as a pathway to heaven. This is not your way to heaven by observing these commandments perfectly. No, your way to heaven has to come through what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. But once you've received that, once you've surrendered your life to Jesus, now this is how God gives these commands to you as a guidebook for you to live by. We've talked about it before, how really God's commandments are given to us as a guardrail for the society, as a mirror for the individual to show us our need for Jesus, and as a guidebook for how once having received Jesus, this is how he wants us to live. But you can't live the guidebook without that constant empowering of the Spirit. So let me leave with that. For some reason, it was just very consciously aware on my mind as I was preparing for this message that I can't leave them only thinking about those four commandments. Though I want you to think about them, 
I want you to think just as much as how you need the Spirit of God to fill your life so you can live this way that God wants you to live. We're going to pray in just a moment. The worship team is going to come up. And together as a congregation, we're going to come back before God's throne in the sense that here we are now just listening to his word, but actively coming forth and worshiping him. As you come before him in worship, I want you to very, very specifically ask God, fill me with your spirit anew. Overfill me. And friends, when the prayer team comes up for it and you're given the opportunity to come up and pray, think about that. I need to come up and ask somebody to pray for me that I would be filled with the Holy Spirit because we don't leave ourselves merely with the letter of the law but with the gracious power of the Spirit fulfilling us. Let's pray for that now. Father, I do thank you, and I do thank you, Lord, for these these people who love you and listen attentively to your word. I thank you, Lord, for these people who take time out on uh, on a Sunday, Lord, to separate some time as being holy unto you. I pray that you'd bless them for that. Lord, even with this time that we have before you and as we hear your word, we're so aware of the truth that apart from the vital work of your Holy Spirit in our life, we can't live this as our guidebook. Lord, not for a moment do we think of these laws as a path to get to heaven. But we do know that expresses your mind, your heart, your will towards us. And we do want to live it, Lord. And where we're not willing, we pray that you'd make us willing to be made willing. God, fill us with your spirit. That we'd go forth and live this, Lord. Not in the futile energy of vows and promises and self-will. But in the abiding strength of the spirit of God poured out into our hearts. Do it among us now, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.